0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm chatting with TV host, media darling and political agitator, James Matheson.
1: Hi, media darling. (laughs) Is that like... What you say for people who don't actually have current employment Yeah,
0: that's it, yeah
1: (laughs) Been on stuff in the past (laughs)
0: Yeah, we just see you everywhere So you're like, it's a nicer thing than saying media slut
1: (laughs) This guy's been on so much stuff But none of which you'll probably remember He's a media darling
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a really nice way to describe you Uh, So I want to get the Reader's Digest version of The Life of Matho uh, As you take a little whiff of one of my essential oils which we've been discussing before we've started. I that was <laughs> <laughs> Oh, You okay. are going to be loosey-goosey. <laughs> uh, tell me back right at the beginning when you were a little bloke, I'm assuming wandering around with a beard. Uh, when you were a kid, what were you like when you were little?
1: I loved sports. Like That's what I was obsessed with. Um, I was terrible at school.
0: Were you? I had, yeah, I had
1: no interest in like actual study. Uh, I didn't have the attention span for it. Um but I was really good at bluffing, so no one really had an idea that I was as bad as I was mm-hmm. academically. Um, not to say that I'm not a bright person, I think I am, yeah, but you're just smart. in terms of that structure where you sit down, thirty kids in a class, follow what one person is saying, wrote learn stuff. I just Something in me reacted against that, so I never did very well. But yeah, I loved playing sports and watching sports like basketball, tennis, cricket, soccer. Uh, I played all of it. And yeah, that, I think part of me, and this is true for probably a lot of young Australian males and females as well, like thought that maybe I could like play sports. Maybe I could do that for a job, you know.
0: What sport in particular did you have one you wanted to do?
1: I loved cricket, but I was pretty terrible at it, you know. Right. And then there gets to a point when you're not so good at cricket, it becomes like the longest Saturday afternoon <laughs> of your entire life.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Because you're not really spending much time at the crease, you're not really getting a bowl. So you're going from probably eleven in the morning to probably five thirty in the afternoon, standing out waiting at, you know, long off. You know <laughs> yeah for five hours, you know, so you get a lot of thinking time done <laughs> as, as a shitty cricketer, you know, which is great for if you're a sort of contemplative type, which I think I am um to just you know daydream and you know pretend that you know, you could be captaining Australia one day
0: were you a very performy
1: kid no no i was I was um You know, pretty quiet But I always had a lot of really funny mates, I think And so I always uh, was drawn to them People who didn't take things so seriously um, And saw through a lot of the bullshit um, Whether it be at school or about how, you know Society worked and was prepared to like Skirt around the edges of the rules Yeah, Mm. so No, I don't think it was ever performy, And I don't think, you know when i was at high school that was really encouraged like i was at a catholic boys school and it wasn't seen as that academically beneficial to be doing the performing arts stuff in saying that i was in uh, hamlet at high school yeah. Well, yeah, yeah um i was in the mock trial team do you remember mock oh, trial it was loved like a bit of mock trial it was like debating but when you Thought debating was for geeks? Yeah. Like you could sort of pretend that you were a barrister?
0: I blame mock trial entirely for the fact that I went and did a law degree because I thought this is what it's about. It's Uh about standing up in front of people, arguing a point. This is great. It's like law and order in real life. And it's like, oh, no, it's not. It's photocopying documents and completing contracts and it is boring.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's it's filing stuff. That's (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> it's using a hole punch. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that's the great thing. And sleeping scam. at the office. No one the, of the New South Wales Law Society sponsored that thing. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah. Just it, indoctrinate kids.
0: That's it. Exactly. <laughs> so apart from the sports dreams, mm. uh, did you have any other, like, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: No, I didn't have any of that.
0: No. You didn't know what you wanted no to idea. do? No So, when you left school, what did what did you do? Did you go to uni or...? No, I
1: didn't go to uni. Uh, one of my sisters, my elder sister, had gone on student exchange um, about 10 years before me and that fascinated me that you could get finished school and go travelling and mm. live in another country and so I really agitated to do that and my parents sort of conceded eventually. Um, and then I got my HSC results and they are like, mm, I don't think you're going to do that. You know, mm. you probably need to buckle down and find a career. But uh, to their credit, they saw me crying and, you know, <laughs> decided, <laughs> sure. And broke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, first year out of school, I went to South America. I lived in Ecuador for a year as did a student. You? Yeah, and so I did another year of high school in South America, learned Spanish, learned how to play football um, and, yeah, lived in a, a town... Um, in esmeraldas which is in the north really poor part of ecuador and yeah learned a lot about not being a white boy on the northern beaches you know
0: during that year were you sort of thinking where what am the f- I, have I done yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah
1: i mean in the first few months you're like i can't speak the language no one ever speaks english this is before sort of email and internet Um, If you wanted to call home, you know, there was a like international exchange phone center you had to walk to. Um, So it was really isolating and terrifying. And I'm, you know, 16, 17, I'm 17 at the time. And so you're like, I can't even, I can't even ask for a glass of water here, you know. (laughs) I'm going to die thirst. (laughs) (laughs) i I'm so thirsty. (laughs) If I spoke Spanish, I would be less thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you just find a way to survive and then you end up making friends and, you know, you're a bit of a novelty because you're a gringo over there. And, yeah, it was an incredible year. And I think only later on do you realise how sort of formative doing something like that is. But I distinctly remember coming back from that year and thinking, oh, man, everything would have changed in a year. And that's when you first realise that... Nothing ever changes, Nothing. you know. People are still doing the same thing at the same places with the same people, having the same conversations. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think for me that was really powerful to go away and go, this, this there is a million different ways that people can live their lives and they're all legitimate and they're all pretty fascinating.
0: When you came home, did you feel any clearer about where you wanted to go, what you wanted to do or were you? did you just come back and float?
1: Yeah, I floated, yeah. I was working, I think I got a job... Um, in a warehouse at Innovations. Do you know Innovations mail-order catalogue?
0: Oh, my word. I get that mail-order (laughs) catalogue now because I bought one of their mobile phones for my dad because he can't use any of the smartphones or anything. And I was looking for – I'd never heard of the company before and now they will not stop sending me their damn catalogs. Do you ever flick
1: through the (laughs) catalogs? No, I haven't yet. Oh, here's a wall clock that meows like (laughs) your cat. Here's here's a laser pen that you can use as a broom. It's like (laughs) – who buys this shit, you know? And the reality is... A lot of people, A lot of people buy this shit in huge amounts. So, I was working in a warehouse at Innovations. Um, but I wasn't working in the good part of the warehouse where you send the stuff out. I was working in returns where people send the shit back. And so, if you buy something from one of those mail-order places and you don't like it, you put it back in your little post pack and you send it back. And then someone, some schmuck, (laughs) has to open this massive cage full of returns mail every day and then log the shit that you don't like. We're talking busted clock radios. We're talking used slippers. My my favourite moment, I think, was... We used to sell these things called Breast Friends, which are the chicken... (laughs) oh chicken fillets, fillets right that women wear within their bra yes. to yeah make you look like you've got bigger boobies Buzzies. yeah mm. and so women would wear them try them on for a while and then go no nah, they're not for me put them back in the bag <laughs> and then just post them back so you're it's this lucky dip where you're opening packages you don't know what's in there and oh oh here's some sweaty
0: breast fillets that someone's
1: used and sent back that's that's
0: great It's like the unhygienic version of Anthrax Remember when that was going around And everybody was worried about opening
1: mail Yeah, yeah. it's like the shittiest Christmas ever Oh, what did someone get me? <laughs> <laughs> Some... Dirty onions
0: (laughs) I'm always surprised At what people Will send back Because I am so I I think when I hear Stories like this I think Why am I so particular About following the rules Mm. When people clearly Do not give a shit Why do I leave The tags on Only wear it once Never leave the house Pack it back up Exactly as I found it And send it back in When people are just Putting their boob sweat And a couple of chicken fillets And going James will deal with it
1: (laughs) And and he will And he did (laughs) Sometimes we would send We would sell like uh, Like Um, this pack of gardening, like a uh, a hoe and uh, a little shovel and these seeds for people who wanted to learn gardening. And people would just send back shit covered in mud. (laughs) Here's a plastic bag (laughs) with rusty shit covered in mud. Here's my return address. And you're like, okay, that's like clearly not within the 30 (laughs) days. You've had this for two years. (laughs) They're even weirder than that. Sometimes people wouldn't even put their name on it.
0: Like I just send Well back. they're just making a point They're just sending <laughs> a mate To make a point They don't even want the refund They're yeah. just like Deal with this yeah. That that surely is I feel like those kind of jobs Are not good if you are looking To have faith in humanity no. Because all you do every day Is deal with the worst Of the worst people Who think it's okay To keep something for two years And then ask for a refund <laughs> And then
1: But that's a snapshot Into the mentality Of a lot of people who have this idea that once something is no longer within my vicinity, it doesn't exist. Yeah, like you know, you see, you see that with what people throw out on the street. Not on council cleanup days. They're just like, yeah, i just. It's not in my house anymore. It no longer exists. I don't care the process of what happens next. Yeah, you know? it's an amazing mindset that that so many people have. Yeah.
0: So um, a post-innovation, what, what, where did you move to after innovations? How long were you working there?
1: Oh, I don't know. I reckon like a couple of years I was there and then um, I was working at nights at a service station, yeah.
0: At this whole time, are you just thinking, I'm just going to meander around? Were no. you trying to cultivate a plan? <laughs> I, were you- I
1: specifically remember a couple of things about working there. One was a lot of Maori guys worked there and on a Friday afternoon, we go to the pub across the road, the Parkway Hotel in French's Forest and we have a 45-minute lunch break. And they're big guys and they're, you know, adults. I'm still 18 or 19. Um, And they would smash three schooners at lunchtime, sometimes go back and work the forklift. (laughs) And I try to keep up, right? Yeah, of course. And so, I'm, I'm not a big drinker, right? And so, at 18 or 19, three schooners in 40 minutes... I'm going back. I'm struggling on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. And so, that was one point I was like, I don't think this place is for me. <laughs> yeah. And the, the defining moment of being there is when I saw a couple of guys who were probably in their late 50s, early 60s, who'd been there for 20 odd years, maybe longer. And I was like, oh, oh my God, this is what can happen. You know, you just don't do anything and mm. you become them. Mm-hmm. Lovely guys. Amazing what they did. But I was like that, I'm I'm... Noping the out of here. Yeah, you know? and so I think at some stage I spoke to my parents and I was like, "I we need to work out a plan." And they are like, "What are you into?" And I was into computers. Like that—that's what we sort of forgot in the mix. You know, I didn't do a lot of schoolwork, but I was always tinkering with computers. Um, and so I went to the Computer Power Training Institute. I don't even remember that.
0: Never heard. Break ever. down the walls,
1: <laughs> right? Don't you? Oh, a guy with a sledgehammer. Oh, I remember this theme song. Yeah. yeah. So I did there, and uh, I I studied there, and I did quite well. Um,
0: What were you studying, like programming or...?
1: uh, Technical support, so actually pulling machines apart, putting video cards back in, and also software. And then straight out of there, I got a job for Dell Computers in a call centre, which is also great for shaping anyone listening (laughs) Want to get a perspective on humanity. Work in a call centre, you will develop more compassion and patience and empathy than... You can imagine for people Mm. who you then call, you know. um, So, I now have infinite patience for people when I call up with a problem because I know the shit fight that Mm. it is to be on the other end of the phone. Um, And, yeah, I was there for about a year. Mm.
0: So, when did the $20 Mm. challenge come into it? Because this – I can actually remember you on that show. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking you were great. I, I can't even remember what year that show was. So that must
1: have been maybe 2000. So, that right. 2000 is a really big year in, in transforming from working in a call centre to moving into like media. And
0: So, where did that... So, you that was the first thing that you did in media, that $20 The challenge? very first
1: thing. So, I'm in bed, living with my parents, working in a call centre during the day and then a service station on a Saturday and a Friday night thinking this is... You know this is this is living, (laughs) and Tim Bailey comes on my TV after Sports Tonight. So I always watch Sports Tonight. I was pretty fanatical about that show, and he was like, "Hey, are you up between eighteen and twenty five? Awesome! And you want to get a trip overseas? Then check out the Channel Ten website, and um, we have the opportunity for you." And so I did, um, and they were looking for people who wanted to travel overseas. That was me. and I was between 18 and 25 and I applied for this thing and it, there was very scant details about it. It was more about, um, are you outgoing? Do you think you can think on your feet? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. And I sent in an audition. I filled out a, a application form. Um, then I went in for an audition, which was just a chat across the table with the producer. Keep in mind, I've never done anything like this before in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and they say, great, we really like you. Um, Can you go... This is at the Channel 10 10 Studios in Piedmont. Can you go with this cameraman right now down to the fish markets and you'll get some instructions there? I was like, sure. And one of the instructions was like, can you find accommodation, pretend that you're from out of town and find accommodation from someone? And so I just played along and then I got a call not long after saying, hey, we want you to be on this show called the $20 Challenge. I was like, yes, I'm in. What do I do? And they say... Basically, it's like a reality show. We need you in a couple of weeks' time to turn up at the airport with um, one's, one week's worth of clothing for temperatures between um, 18 and, uh, no, I think 14 and 24 degrees. That was it. That's all the information we That's got. That's it. Yeah. And so we get to uh, the airport. We find out we're going to London me and three other australians and we land there and then we get told what the show is so we get told what's going to happen in the show when we land in london wow and basically because this is a long time ago the premise of the show is and this is before amazing race this is before all those sort of shows Mm -hmm. um they say okay you've got a week to survive in london you've got 20 us dollars which is probably about 12 quid and you'll have challenges each day and then there was a list of things that we had to do and then we were off like and that was it i think i can
0: remember you busking
1: (laughs) so i busked yeah i pretended i was part of a cult and i needed accommodation i blagged my way into a bns ball
0: (laughs) you were Um, very good at it
1: yeah i was i i did really well and i survived the week i completed all my challenges and yeah, it was a crazy week and it is was there a crazy any, show. Is there
0: anybody else that was on the show that stuck around in media? Uh,
1: no, because no, it, it was one remember. series mm. and it sort of wasn't... It, a, a few people watched it, but it wasn't huge. But I remember, um, you know, talking to Tim Bailey, who hosted it on the flight back and about, you know, can you do this for a living? Like, is this a real thing? And mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're young and you, you seem like you've got something, so you should keep at it so thanks Tim Bailey in part for like just stoking that fire that yet this could be something you do and then I got back I was retrenched from Dell computers they were moving to Penang or Malaysia and um, so I was I was stoked to be out of there because I was like maybe this is something I can do and then maybe a week later Channel V had um, this open cattle call audition they were looking for music reporters And so I went to that. I talked about a record that I loved. And so when I talked earlier about um, sport was one of my great loves, music was another great love. Like I collected records, I went and saw bands, I, you know, read all the street press reviews. Um, So I knew my stuff. And then uh, two weeks later, I got that gig. So within the space of about a month, like I went to London uh for channel 10 then i would then appear on channel 10 and then i scored a job on foxtel um, so
0: was that the search for who won the was search the channel the reporter
1: search? so yumi steins right and she I, won yeah we the very first kids to win that
0: so did you <laughs> get de- was it only one winner or how did you or was it
1: there was meant to be one winner but they loved yumi and they loved myself and they went let's hire them both yeah, wow. so we started together and she was working in a sandwich shop in, I think, in Swan Hill, you know, so we were sort of plucked from nowhere and, yeah, that and that was it. Did and, you
0: take to the job like a duck to order?
1: Uh, like, in many ways, like, I was terrified beyond belief, but at the same time, I remember, you know, very early on, like, interviewing, like, Destiny's Child and... Um, God, it might have been like Limp biscuit or something. I was like, this is crazy. They're letting this 20-year-old kid do this, mm. you know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's a great strength in like not knowing what you're doing, you mm. know. Like when you are that naive, you don't know how you should be performing. And so, you can really very much, I think, be yourself because you don't have a template for what you should be trying or who you should be modelling yourself off.
0: Were you a preparer? Like, would you work to make sure that you, even though you didn't know what you were doing, were as prepared as possible? Yeah, I think so,
1: because I didn't want to blow this opportunity, you know. Um, But I've never been, ever been into having questions. I think that is the worst way to interview people. Do you? Yeah.
0: Because I always think you need to go in there, but have be able to leave the plan. Yeah, uh, but just know you've got something to come back. No stuff.
1: To. Yeah, you. What you? I was always like, no. I'm. I, what I'm? I should clarify that. I would. I hate people who take questions into an interview because I think then you're like okay when you're listening to what they're saying you're also like i've got to get to my next question you know i was i always like that idea of you know when i'm talking to people i care about and i want to find out about them Mm -hmm. i never have a list of prepared questions you know i know enough about them to ask things that i think i want to find out and then you know if you listen enough surely you'll be able to perpetuate the conversation off the back of that. You've
0: got more faith in your memory than I do. And I also, I'm a huge researcher before I go in. And there are certain obscure things that I would like to talk about that I fear that if we're not in the natural flow of conversation, I hate nothing more than walking out the door and going, that Mm. question about... So for me, I think you if you are the type of interviewer who gets stuck on your question and is like but next I'm getting to that that is problematic but for me it gives me like a structure where if I never look at a single question fantastic because I'm in the moment and I'm picking up on what you're saying but I feel like it's maybe it's a bit of a security blanket for me that I know well if, if we haven't gotten to where I want to go because I've thought about sort of some of the things that I want to get through mm. I can always kind of weave back in so yeah. that's a ballsy move I reckon because I wouldn't have the balls to go in there question free
1: I'm not saying don't research it. Mm. and And always have your first question, like know how you want to start it. But and also don't be scared of like that space. That's what I always thought. Like if there is a bit of a silence, because if you, if there is silence, like ninety nine percent of the time,
0: they'll feel it. They're they're going to feel it because they don't want (laughs) they don't
1: want silence even more than you don't. Yes. Um. And so that's really powerful, I reckon. And often they'll give you stuff that they wouldn't maybe offer because they want to feel that silence, Mm. you know. But uh, there was a summer where I just started and I got to go to the big day out in the Gold Coast and in Sydney and Melbourne. And I think in one week I went and saw Queens of the Stone Age, Coldplay, PJ Harvey um, at the drive-in. And um, God, had someone else massive who was out. And, and that was over the course of one week. And I didn't pay for any of that. Like, yeah. I'm given tickets. That's your job. Mm. This is my job now. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. I, yeah. was, I was, my head was spinning. I was like, this can't be real. This is a job for yeah. someone who likes music and is in their early 20s. So, I can't imagine anything that will surpass that. That was always my dream job without even knowing it and that will always be the, the high watermark I reckon
0: Well you jobs. also came into that station and that show uh, I mean that was a juggernaut Channel V I remember at the time I don't know whether but I just remember it seeming from the outside looking in like a huge operation. You always got, you know, front row tickets to everything. It was always the biggest bands. There were always people down at the Fox Studios yeah. thing you could fill it with a crowd. It just felt like there was a huge buzz around that show and everybody certainly in my life at that age knew about the show and, and watched it, which seems a bit odd because tells never had that huge a penetration.
1: I know and I I didn't have it either. Like I only found out about the job interview through a friend of my Matt. Um, who said, you should go for this, you know, Mm. because he and I shared a a passion for a few different bands and he knew that I'd done that $20 challenge and and he said, you should go for this. But I didn't have Channel V. I didn't have Foxtel. So Mm. I'd never seen it before. So I sort of bluffed a bit when they said, you know, do you love the channel? I was like, yeah, it's how good is (laughs) Channel V? It's rad. Channel (laughs) 5. So I didn't have it. And, And... I I didn't realise until, you know, much later on. And I think once I'd left, actually, when people would come up to me and say, oh, I grew up watching By Demand. I used to race home and request the song. And, you know, I didn't realise how big it was sort of culturally for a lot of young people at the time until much later. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there were times when we, we, we had Metallica down there. We had Foo Fighters down there. Like, and... To be part of that was really extraordinary. And also, there was so much freedom because you're on free-to-air. And Mm. so, when we talked earlier about, you know, were you terrified? Did you take to it like a duck to water? Like, cable TV is such an amazing place to have as a learning ground because commercial TV, it is brutal. Mm. Like, you aren't given many chances to make mistakes or to learn or to, you know, just find out, what you're capable of but cable TV and community TV as well is this amazing amazing sort of learning ground for people to just try and find out what they can do and not be afraid of failing you know and I think that was a big push in Melbourne recently when Channel 31 was closing down because I think either Walid Ali or um, Hamish and Andy and a lot of people who have actually gone on to do well in media cut their teeth in community tv and cable tv for us you me and myself particularly was was that definitely
0: i think at that time too i don't know how long the channel had been around or foxtel had been around at that point but i I guess it was still in its infancy in many ways so the experimentation and the ability to sort of go hey let's give this a crack because we're just working it out too Mm. like that's a magical place to be yeah
1: it was amazing like there were there were no real rules you know I mean, there's some of the shows that we did, I don't even remember Room 208. It was yeah. Like this show, when our amazing producer, Ben Richardson, was like, let's just have a show where everyone dances, you know, and yeah. people getting ready at home can dance as well, you That's know?
0: That's right, yeah.
1: And vote for their favourite. Like it was something out of the 70s, like yeah. some harebrained idea. Um, and, and same with the music bus, taking a travelling music festival to all regional towns around the country. It had never been done before and, you know, the kids out there had never had anything like that come to them and so that was really extraordinary to be part of.
0: How long did that gig last for? Uh,
1: I reckon like eight or nine years. Wow. And so
0: was Australian Idol, did that come simultaneously Mm. with the Channel V?
1: So in the UK, Pop Idol had just been a huge success Um, and I think they did one season of American Idol and in both, it was hosted by two guys. There was Ant and Deck in the States. Oh, yeah. It was Ryan Seacrest and some other guy in America for, I think Ryan went, yeah, he's not required. And so they were <laughs> I got this looking guys. to... Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, the Seacrest. <laughs> Seacrest out. Seacrest out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they wanted to sort of replicate that term formula. So they're looking for two guys um, who work together as a team, sort of in that demo, and they asked Andrew and I to audition. Now, I'd never heard of that show. Mm. Um, I'd been at Channel V for maybe two or three years and we'd been hosting the request show together. And this was all um, completely under the table because we were under contract. We weren't allowed to do other stuff. But, you know, Fremantle were like, yeah, just come and we, we just, we'll work it out. We'll yeah, work right. it out. Um, and they sent us home with some... I My recollection, maybe my memory is... is Fuzzy, but I remember getting VHSs. Would that be right in early 2000s
0: still? Yeah. They yeah. gave
1: us VHS copies of...
0: Yes, it would be right. Of Pop Idol. Yes. yeah, And right. I'm
1: watching it in my uh, apartment in Manly, watching Pop Idol. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> and, and keep in mind that we just had pop stars out here. Oh, so yeah. they'd had um, Bardo, Bardo, Scandalous... Scandal
0: apostrophe Scott
1: Kane. Oh, God. Was on it So he was on the last series Which was a, a, a dismal failure So we thought Look let's do this Worst case It'll be three months of work You know A little bit of money on the side And you know Wouldn't hurt uh, the channel itself You know And so yeah We agreed to do it And then it became like crazy Enormous It was, it was the biggest show on TV For about three or four years there
0: And that was a total shock for <clears throat> you Oh yeah Yeah <laughs> But also, like, I
1: hadn't done commercial TV before. So, I thought, this is what TV is. How good's TV? How good's being on TV? Yeah. You know? Um, Every show you're on is a success. Um, A a total shock because very quickly, like, one to two million people were watching every night. And you know what's funny doing a live show is you rarely ever get to see it. Like, I've probably seen maybe two hours of Australian Idol in my life Mm. because you you shoot it live. Afterwards, you sort of just try and get away from the show. Mm. Um, And then we're also doing Channel V at the same time. So, we would do that. Then we would go and do the the weekly by-demand show during the week. And so, you you were sort of detached from how big it actually was. Um, But I remember going to that grand finale at the Opera House and just like there being 10,000 people out of their minds being bombarded from people I just had barely knew and had hadn't heard from for years, wanting tickets to that grand final, I was like, "This is going to be big," mm. and and it was. It was like I think four million people watched that finale, which is was crazy for the time. And
0: did your life <coughs> change in any significant way in terms of the visibility of you?
1: Being on cable, like occasionally kids in the demo who watch it will go, "Hey, you're on Channel V." That changed from it being occasionally to like every time you left the house, people were going, oh my God. But everyone wanted to talk about the show, which right. was amazing, you know? It was never like, you're that guy from that thing. It was always like, oh my God, I can't believe that that person got kicked out or oh my Paulini, how could that have happened? Or oh, this is this is a bloody scam. Cosima didn't have nodules. <laughs> This is a setup, isn't it?
0: I am <coughs> loving that you are dipping back into those references. <laughs> Hayley Jensen, she's great. <laughs> well, um, that's good because then it's not like you, 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 you. It's like a yeah. – but still, did you – how did you deal with that kind of, oh, my God, I can't down, go down to the shops without somebody pulling me out?
1: So, I reckon for about two weeks you are like, how shit hot am I? Right. And then very quick you're like, this is messed up. Mm. Like – I've I was I've always been a pretty private person and I think in retrospect, thank God this was before social media um, because you can't do anything now no. without people sharing it on social media. We did all sorts of dodgy stuff, you know, in terms of going out late and partying and making a, a bit of a disgrace of ourselves, but we were never like really held to account because social media now is that crazy microscope that ensures that any faux pas whether it's what you say what you do or how you look is magnified and i think that's kind of terrifying for people who are in the spotlight these days mm. but yeah i think it's a bit of a head 100 percent. like all of a sudden everyone knows who you are um and you become aware of like people i'm not and i don't want this to sound like you i'm complaining about it because it's it's an extraordinary experience but it's also something that i would you know, I'd never encourage anyone to want. Like kids mm. say, I want to be famous. I'm like, don't You're be famous. Yeah. Just be rich. Like yeah. <laughs> like if you could choose the two, just get money. Yeah. You know? Because you feel like you've got a, a goiter growing out of your head, yeah. you know, or some deformity because you go to the supermarket and everyone is looking at you. You know, you go to the airport and some people are pointing at you and it, it's weird. It makes you strangely self-conscious and uncomfortable. And you sort of understand why you look at woman's day and there's celebrities who go to the airport with a hat pulled down and massive sunnies and headphones on it's because that bombardment of not just people talking to you but people staring and pointing and looking at you it makes you feel like a freak you know and you're like i just i'm just a kid on a tv show you know Mm -hmm. um and so if you also i also feel like if you're a little bit partial to buy into the illusion like yeah I'm I'm hot shit then it could really yeah mess with you I think mm.
0: well it can because you don't have any control over whether it sticks around or not or whether the success stays or whether you know so that's something mm. that if particularly if you've gotten it quite quickly mm. um all of a sudden there's there's not the you haven't built up the years of oh, I have a huge body of work, there's I'm getting attention here because I've put the the hard yards in and there's I have an element of control about why I'm here. It's just all of a sudden everybody knows who I am, and this show could burn up tomorrow, and then next thing you know every time if I want to go and get a job, someone somewhere they're like, aren't you the guy from Australian Idol? I think
1: it was i don't I don't think that that came into it for me. Mm. I think it was more. I always felt like this is disproportionate to the body of work that I've done. Oh, I was yeah. like, I, I'm just not a popular show, guys. Like, I haven't earned anything. I haven't created anything. Um, I remember it being weird that I was in like the local paper or the local old boy newsletter from my old school about great success from the school. And I was like, there's there's guys who are like lawyers and nurses and doctors and teachers. Like, you know, they've actually earned this. Mm. Yet the acclaim and the focus around people who are successful in media is really disproportionate to the amount of and the value of their work, um, which I always found really uncomfortable.
0: It's amazing the value that we put Mm. on people when we see them on a television screen, Mm. what we're willing to forgive them, what we're, you know, what we're willing to put on them in terms of them as a person, their achievement, just because they got on a screen, you know, and you think, well, if you met that same person and they said something to you in a dinner party, you wouldn't even look at them twice. But all of a sudden, if you see them on a television screen, you could go, oh, you're worth something to me now. And Mm. it is bizarre because we end up having that relationship with people in media where, I don't know we're also willing to buy into the bullshit and also for people who think I want to be famous because they want that we they want people to feel that about them without realizing like there's nothing behind that it's hollow, yeah, and you also set yourself up for. Fail, I don't know, you know, you set yourself up for disappointment. Mm. If that's all you're chasing, um, I think I think people have a, such a warped idea about what it means to be recognised in the street. Yeah. Um, and it's not a case of, oh gosh, I've spent years finding the cure for can- cancer and people are coming up and giving me a high five about it and I can feel proud about my achievement. It's like, I was on, I, I'm on the telly. Mm. I, <laughs> you know? I don't know, it's weird.
1: But then I think a lot of people... Uh, live lives where they they don 't get recognized for anything, yeah, and so they think that fame might be the answer to that mm. and it it really isn 't and I think you see a lot of people maybe more in l a or in the overseas market, who end up you know turning to drugs or their life spirals out of control I think that the idea that any of your self worth is tied to your success in this industry is so um, facetious and...
0: Fraught with danger. Yeah,
1: so dangerous that it needs to be... You know, drummed into young people who want to get in the industry. I think.
0: I think part, well, certainly part of the motivation for me starting this show was I I was teaching a lot um, for teaching radio and to people who wanted to get into the business. And people would always want to know how do you get on TV? How do you do? You know, and and they always a wanted the answer to be about two seconds long. Not well, I've worked for like sixteen years. You know, picking up crumbs here, there, and everywhere. And you know, you build a body of work. And so I wanted to talk to people who were on TV to get the sense that hey, it's a lot of work. and also the fame element for most of the people who are professionals is the worst part of the of the job and it's not the thing that uh, that it's cracked up to be because I am all about living your life in a way that is psychologically protects you from major you know damage or dipping down in a hole of depression and you know because I've been around that a lot and I think if you desperately want fame that is reflective of an insecurity that if you get that you will, it will all fall apart for you mm. because it won't be what you dreamt it to be. It won't fulfill you the way that you thought it would. It won't fix what problems you were trying to get it to fix. And then all of a sudden it's just a downward spiral. And it, it terrifies me when people want to get into this business for that biz- reason. Cause I think, please let me warn you that that is not the reason to do it.
1: But we, they are sold that constantly yeah by tv by magazines by advertisers you know you you want to be the hero you want to be the superstar you want to be the rock star you know and so if they fall into that trap it's a product of a system that perpetuates that idea as something that is aspirational you know kids are measuring their self-worth on how many followers they've got on instagram Mm. you know and that is a testament to like the toxicity of social media but also to the fact that you know we don't do a lot to reinforce um a sense of self-worth in society beyond that mm. you know like when you know i mean at school um you know even the way that i remember growing up that sporting heroes were idolized you know i think that's really dangerous for kids um i think that idea that you know that is what you want to achieve is the superstardom uh, means that yeah how you value who you are becomes tied to how many people like you or um how many people uh, know who you are that 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 it's so dangerous and so empty that yeah i I'd li- I like that we're talking about that so we can sort of chip away at that myth but you know for me uh it was really important early on to see that hang on this i, I haven't done much and i'm getting all this acclaim this is essentially hollow the whole thing is an illusion you know yeah. and and knowing that early on mem, i could sort of navigate it mm. no this is ridiculous i'll play I'll play along, but this is ridiculous.
0: How do you think shows like Australian Idol and that kind of stuff contribute to that? Because in some ways, I think there's a. It's great to have an avenue for people who just wouldn't get the chance to get into the business to find a way in through the door. Because that's that's sometimes the toughest thing. And you think, gosh, so many people out there are so talented, get overlooked, will never get a chance, and this is a way to get a chance. But at the same time, there is a sense, particularly with, you know, even now it still happens on shows that it's it's rare for that success to continue post show and you have this Attention, even on, you know, shows like The Voice and that kind of stuff where for the series and the season of the show, you're in every magazine, you've got the lights on you, they're shining brightly, and then those lights turn off and you're sort of a household name and a bit set adrift mm. in a way. Um, and so I I, I I, don't know, I grapple with that because, I, I love those shows. I, I think it's amazing to discover talent, but at the same time, I, I've never worked on one, so I don't know how well we prepare, the, the industry prepares. As those individuals for what happens after that life not very well yeah but i just i i feel like it's it's bittersweet in some ways because you think gosh if you were offered the opportunity to go on national television and have your talent displayed to the world why wouldn't you do that mm. but if you at the end of it are sort of going guys gu- guys anyone? <laughs> anyone 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 then would you I'm still here yeah would you do it again if you had the chance i don't know
1: Lee Harding would be a great kid to speak to about this. Remember, he did wasabi,
0: wasabi,
1: oh, and so he that? he he sort What's of became wasabi? third or fourth on the show. He was sort of this punk pop kid and um got music videos and went on a tour and just got chewed up and spat, spat out, out by the industry, mm. you know. And the the two things that always stuck in my claw. And, and I never quite was able to sit comfortably with was what happened to the kids afterwards. You know, mm. they get record deals. But the ones that weren't clearly going to make money were quickly like, okay, yeah. see you bye. You know, rather than let's find them songwriting partners. Let's um, make sure that they can flourish by supporting them. Um, that didn't happen a lot, mm. to be honest. And also... I never was very comfortable with those early audition rounds of Australian Idol when kids would come in who didn't know how terrible they were. Um, producers knew how terrible they were, put them in front of the judges knowing that they were going to get mocked and, and ridiculed by the judges and then by people at home, and they weren't in on it. The kids weren't in on it. Some of the kids thought that, oh, I think I'm amazing here. Right. You know? But they were being set up right. to made Look the Fool. And that always made me feel uncomfortable Mm. Um, because despite the fact that, you know, we always said, you know, this is going to be on air and they'd signed a disclaimer. We knew what the power of being on television and the after effects were. They didn't. They'd never been on television. They weren't privy to actually what happens. And so, yeah, uh, that always made me feel a little bit, uh, yeah, perturbed, I think.
0: It's hard to explain to somebody, though, at the same time to say, look, there are, these are all the perils of the game because it, I don't think it would change anybody's mind. If you said to a kid...
1: No, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm saying that if you know... that, you Oh, it's are, hard to watch. Yeah. If you know what the reality is. If you know what the reality is and you're still... Like, we would have producers um, who would be like, oh, this is this, this kid is going to be television gold But you also knew that they would be, you know, the next day after that show aired would be probably humiliated and ridiculed and Mm. their life would be difficult for a little while after that. So that's a really tricky line. Mm. But I mean, we just, you know, the, the record industry isn't great with people post success, after their success fades. And, you know, neither is the sporting industry. You know, look at all our Australian swimmers, some of them who, you know, once the cameras go off, and you know, there's nothing to train for. Yeah. They're like, what, 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 what do I, I do, do now? You mm-hmm. know. But no, it, there was never. It was none of it was ever malicious. You know? No, of course it's not. Just, it's just it's a machine that's got to be fed. Yeah. The record industry and the TV industry are machines that must be fed. You mm. know.
0: How long were you doing that show for? I think I did
1: six or seven seasons.
0: And why did you decide to leave? I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I. I mean, a little bit of what I just spoke about always rubbed me the wrong way. And a little bit of like, I just wanted to see what other challenges were out there, you know.
0: Did you ever regret it? Yeah, I
1: think so. Mm. I think I did. It only went for one more year. Yeah, right. Um, But... Uh, but I being think...
0: the person to choose leaving is not something you do very often in this business. No. You know, so it's like usually, and I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a believer in fate. So even sometimes I've hung on to things a bit longer because I thought oh, I'll just leave it in somebody else's hands. Yeah. You know, rather than say, I'll leave this now. So I, I don't know. Sometimes it's a bit of a, a mental tug of war with that. And go, oh gosh, should I, shouldn't I?
1: So, I mean, it felt right at the time. Mm. And also it was my first time being on commercial tv so i thought oh you just go and get another job on a hugely successful television show this is easy (laughs) i'll eat this one and i'll just go to another hugely successful television show and i left that and i wasn't sure what i was going to do and the project started up and they asked me to work on that and be on the panel and one of the roving reporters as that started up so in a sense i was kind of right Mm. you know i did go for another project to that and uh yeah, I mean, now with hindsight, I know how difficult it is, how yep. challenging the industry is. You had get a
0: pretty amazing run. An amazing to, run. Yeah.
1: And because you've been on that amazing run, you think that that is how you are going to have the rest of your career. Um, and so as I would realise later on, that that's not the reality. Um, and But it's kind of great to learn that as well, you
0: know. One of the best things I think you can learn is failure early in the business. I think my very first job on radio sort of failed after four months or something. And I learned pretty quick, oh, you're hot and then you're not. And I had, you know, bosses who would hug me hello when I was the breakfast talent. And then the next day I literally passed that same boss. in there <laughs> 100%. He wouldn't even say good morning to me the day before and after not being the breakfast no. talent. Yeah, 100%. I promise you. And that was a harsh lesson and and then began the broken years of <laughs> our <of laughs> Corbett. Um, but, you know, I, I am forever grateful for understanding that at such an early stage in my career because I then worked my ass off. I knew nothing would be easy and then you sort of aren't so damaged by things that are, are, are more often than not outside of your control. Yeah. You know, you can't tell whether a producer – or somebody who's casting something is going to think you're the right person for the job. You might have all of the skills available, but you might not have the right look. You might have not, not have the right chemistry with the person they really want to have. You might not have a million things. You can't control that. So having a realistic understanding of what you're going to get out of the business and realizing that it can be gone in two seconds, I think is a healthy thing to learn at any point during your career. Yeah,
1: and also not thinking that, you know, your value is tied to your getting employment mm. in this industry because if you do that, you, you need either a therapist or some meds yeah. because <laughs> yeah. you're going to miss out on stuff that you're perfect for. Yeah. You're going to be overlooked for stuff that you think you've nailed. You are going to not get callbacks for stuff that you'll leave the room and they're like, this is, this is going to work, you know. Mm. You will get fired by reading about it in the newspaper. Mm and so you, it's it's a very incredibly um fragile industry but at the same time i think it really strengthens your sort of in, intestinal fortitude and your emotional resilience um because it's um it is like that in saying that i think i've complained about you know fame and the brutality of it all it, it's like one of the greatest jobs you could ever have in your life. You know, you get paid well, you don't work crazy hours and you get heaps of perks Mm. like getting to go to stuff that you'd never go to ordinarily. So, there are so many incredible elements to it, but I just... Yeah, I think it's nice to talk about the fact that, you know, it's not all rainbows and lollipops. Yeah, I um, think it's
0: really important for people to have an understanding, particularly people who are on the outside wanting to get in, that it is so much work and that, the, you know, I think it's important to have that realistic, realistic understanding before you jump into things and to know that you need to want to do this for the right reasons. But the thing
1: is now, what I didn't have the opportunity to do that kids have now is that you can have an idea... You can shoot it, you can write it, you can create it, you can have it online and build an audience without the gatekeepers. Yes, like if you are good enough, you will be found out now. Yeah, which is so powerful and so exciting. There has never been a more important or creative or uh, easily accessible time to be in the media. You know, it might not be the mainstream media, but you—if you've got a Good idea, and you know how to shoot and you know how to cut. If you know how to record on your iPhone, you know, and, and make a podcast, you know, you can be out there. And and people are like, Oh, no one will hear my stuff. If you do it enough and it's good enough, you will get an audience. Mm. You know, people will start talking about it. Um, and with that in mind, you it has to be your own shit, yeah. You know, if you are trying to go, Oh, I love what you know, uh kylie jenner does and i'm gonna be like her or i love what um louis ck does i'm gonna do stuff like his or gary v he's big on youtube isn't he mm. i mean I'm, I'm sounding really old now um <laughs> but if you're going i want to do what they do then sorry mm. just pack you have to your be bags, yourself like yeah. know who you are and trust that what you're doing is uniquely your own and 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 people will gravitate towards it. And if they don't, they, that's all right as well. But um, I just think people need to move away from that idea of, oh, I like this character or I like this podcast. I'm going to do a version of that. Just find your own shtick.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you then went to the project. You were doing that for a year and then you left that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I've just left a series of really highly rating hugely successful television shows
0: so why did you decide to leave the project
1: um one was I was living in Sydney and I was in Melbourne and so I was traveling back and forth three days a week which was kind of just it it really took its toll I think Mm -hmm. um and I had always wanted to get into writing and uh I got into a screenwriting course in New York City and I went, well, I'm I'm out of here because I can just come back and get on other highly successful television because that's, that's just what happens. <laughs> this is how the industry
0: works, Arcor.
1: <laughs> <coughs> and so I did that and I was... And also, I'd always wanted to live in New York but I've always wanted to like not just um, be hanging out in coffee shops. Yeah. Like, So I wanted to have a bit of purpose over there. So yeah, I did a screenwriting course over there and it was uh, amazing... To be around other people who had great ideas, it was amazing just trying to try and learn a bit of discipline, which I've never really done in my life. Like, you actually, okay, these are the blocks of time you'll sit down and you'll write. Yeah, you don't want to? Well, tough luck, buddy. Suck you, it you're up. gonna just write. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so that was fantastic. Um, but I was really lucky to be part of the project when it started out and mm. to see a show being created out of nothing. You know, Idol was from a. A format, and so there was a, a a Bible that you had to try and replicate in terms of look and feel, and the the project, um, you know. I think Craig Campbell, this is just an idea and he's head on a napkin and he made it happen. Um, and what is it, eight years later?
0: Mm. Fantastic example too. Like one of the things that a lot of uh, media bosses that I've come across, especially in radio, they sort of say, oh, yeah, we need to pick and stick. But then they don't pick and stick. They flip-flop and they go. And the only real re- way to better a show in and to make it successful is to stick with it. And that show was panned at the beginning and had small numbers It was like, this is never going to last. Mm-hmm. And they kept pushing and pushing and kept it going. And now it is one of the most successful shows on television and everybody knows about it. And that idea of the commitment to that show to get it up to where it needed to be, I think was a great example of what you can do by sticking with something.
1: And 10 are pretty unique in that field. Mm. I mean, you know, at the time they were, you know, doing extraordinarily well. You know, MasterChef was booming. I think Idol was still doing okay. Okay. Biggest Loser was doing pretty well. Um, and so they, they were prepared to to pick and stick. And they and they still are. Like, have you been paying attention is a really great example. Mm. There was no promo. There was no campaign about its launch. They just put a show on and then they just stuck with it. And now it's got a real cult following. Yeah. And people love it. Um, but there's very, very few uh, network executives who are prepared to do that, you mm. know, because... There's so much at stake, you know. There's so much money at stake. Those advertising slots are expensive and if you Safer promise, is better for yeah, some exactly. executives, You'd yeah. rather run, you know, crazy shit that dogs do, oh, volume good four. Lord. Good Lord. And, and get 800,000 <laughs> people. It costs you nothing. Your yeah. return on investment pretty good. Um, but, yeah, I'd full credit to Channel 10. They really do sort of stick with stuff mm. in...
0: So, you finished the screenwriting course and then what was the plan? Did you ever want to stay over there or were we like, I'm going to come back and get right back into the high uh, profile, really successful television show that's just waiting for me yeah, to yeah, get off the plane yeah. and get into? Um,
1: <laughs> which didn't quite happen. <laughs> um, I don't know. And I also thought like maybe I could write, a, f- maybe maybe these films are good that I'm writing, you know, and something will happen. But... If you think television is hard, try try writing scripts. Yeah, that's 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 that is some it's yeah. also a
0: long-term goal barely anybody's first script gets made for a start no. so what ends up happening is if you get picked up you end up sort of having a suite of scripts that you have to write so you have to have you know six seven eight scripts in your portfolio that then your agent ships around to producers and they say hey here's an example of this bot." like it is a long-term strategy it's not just i'll write this script it'll yeah. get made and i'll be famous <laughs>
1: But I'm like, I think I am just like a chronic optimist.
0: Oh, right. You thought think, that was how it was going to roll no, out? But I just, <laughs> when, As I
1: think about it, as I talk to you, like everything I've done, I've sort of been like, yeah, how hard could it be? You yeah. know, just do it and see what happens. Um, and, you know, that's probably to my detriment at times. But at the same time, like there's, there's a lot to be said for just having a go at stuff. 100%. And not overthinking it. What, if I, what will happen here and how am I going to do it? Just do it and see what happens.
0: No, I don't know? think you can ever have the end goal in <laughs> mind. I think you've just got to do it because you can do nothing else. Because you're like, I've always been really interested in trying to write a script. I wonder if I could do that. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to try and write a script. It can't be I'm going to be a Hollywood writer. It can't be that. It's just got to be this is the activity in front of me that interests me. If that then at the end of that leads <laughs> me to realize I never want to do that again, that's great. If it leads me to think, gosh, I want to write another one and it's going to be best than the, better than the next one. You can only take baby steps and eventually you turn around with the benefit of hindsight and go, oh, that's how I got here.
1: In saying that, which is totally true, in saying that I had the luxury of you know um, saving a bit of money from idle, so I actually could take that time to write, which most people who are creatives never get the opportunity yeah. to do. They're working three jobs just to pay their rent. Um, yes, yeah, so I came back. I don't even know. It feels like a real blur when I came back. I, I did some stuff... I think on Nova, I was doing a show with them, um, like a new music show. I, I hosted a show on Foxtel. From, it was a rugby league show with Brendan Cowell, called the League Lounge because oh I used to really love rugby league. Um, bits and pieces, yeah, and and sort of uh, just yeah, like you're talking about crumbs. I was doing crumbs, and I was also I also started doing. Um, movie reviews for weekend sunrise oh yeah um and that's sort of how i ended up getting or in a roundabout way on the channel 10 breakfast show right because um adam boland who was the producer of weekend sunrise was also the guy who got hired to create wake up and so he was like hey i like the guy who does movies maybe he could be our host and yeah and that's what happened there.
0: How did you feel about the end of that show? Because I think, um, and I don't mean anything about the show in particular, any of that kind of stuff. I just mean the idea of a show starting and then not continuing. Do you deal well with that kind of stuff? Because, I don't know, I mean, it's so a part of the business.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Everyone, and this is without exception, everyone I know in the business has been axed brutally yes
0: yes. it's a part of the if you have not then i mean darren hinch used to always say if you've not been fired about 10 times you haven't worked in the business like mm, it's part of it
1: yeah i was actually really interested in um i think it was michelle laurie last year was talking about you know nova or one of the networks being a bit hard on her like saying look sorry it's time to go and speaking out about it. And I was like, yeah, I can see what you're saying. But like that is every single person I know mm. in TV and radio. Um, if if you get called in and told before you read about it in the papers, then you're actually ahead of the game. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think I got called in on the Wednesday afternoon um, and they said Friday will be your last show, which is pretty good. Like mm. I know Helen Kapalos, you know, I think mm. she was like, finished her broadcast and then straight after, hey, um, that was your last show.
0: So Wow. What the f***? You yeah, you don't even get a chance to say <laughs> goodbye.
1: Yeah. I, I know, you know, sports presenters at other networks who do a broadcast and then the next morning it's like, that was your last show. For the week? No, no, no. For your life?
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's how my first show finished. Yeah. it was my, And I was in... <laughs> uh melbourne and i was leaving to go back to sydney for my 21st birthday party mm. and the boss called me in and said and i was racing out to the airport and i said oh, I i've like really got to go to the airport he's like no no no, i need you to come in It was like the show won't be coming back on monday yeah. and that was it and he's like what are, what are you going to sydney for and i was like my 21st birthday party <laughs> so okay and then it Happy was like <laughs> Yeah, it's like how's the show going? It's like uh huh, uh huh. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, it's it's it can be really brutal at times. So sometimes, even the last full time contract I did at Triple M. We got uh, told sort of six weeks before we ended, which is great because then you go, okay, well, let's have a great six weeks. Like, Mm. let's bring this baby home. Hamish and Andy have just announced a year before they're leaving that they're leaving. So they get to sort of romp it in for a full year. Well,
1: they're leaving on their own terms. Yes, of course they are. And, you know, for people who are listening and don't have a lot of experience with how the industry works. They do that because they are afraid that someone will set the ship on fire. You know, they don't want you to... And this happens in a lot of businesses. It's Mm. not just TV. You know, when I lost my job at Dell Computers, it was like... This is your last day. You're out. And they don't want people to download the, the company, hard drives yeah, or and or <laughs> upload malware, what you, you know, or go on air and just burn the station to the ground, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think all to skeletons. myself, with,
0: but I think to yeah. myself with performers who do that and there are a few out there that I go, you are doing yourself the disservice. <laughs> like if you are a killer professional and you find out, you know, 2 weeks to go and you go out and you have bumper shows and you've been a delight to work with and you leave that building with your head held high, you win. Like everybody wins. If you walk in there, throw a bomb under the joint, talk about who's boning who in the sales department, and then piss off. Like you'll never work again. Yeah, so Terry,
1: it's-, it's Terry. If anyone's listening, Terry <laughs> is boning Joyce. <laughs> Terry and Joyce.
0: That sales department, I tell you. So has
1: a, Roman- <laughs> a Roman sandal.
0: So were you? Um, were you optimistic? Like when you when wake up finished, were you just like, "Yep, okay, on to the next"? Did you? Because w- I guess that's your first. I don't want to say failure because I don't think these things of failures but that was your first sort of oh this hasn't been my decision to leave
1: Mm, yeah was Uh,
0: that weird to compute
1: i feel like because it hadn't been doing well channel 10 wasn't doing well i thought for a little while i thought we're in we're in trouble here right unless numbers pick up we are going to be roadkill yeah yeah and they never really did you know um and a lot of things weren't in our favor but uh i think mentally i was sort of prepared for it Yeah, Mm. so that wasn't a massive shock. Um, At the same time, it had been something that I was really excited to be part of and I thought it had potential to be something a bit different but we just never got there Mm.
0: yeah what about then of course i can't go uh, without talking about the old shift into politics uh taking on tony abbott uh, in a seat he's held since 92 yeah had you always been interested in politics where did that sort of come from i
1: think i'd always been interested in issues of social justice i think i've always been interested in politics um and so I had never really thought about, you know, actually getting into the political system. I always thought the way that you created change was, you know, going to marches and going to roundtables and signing petitions. Um, but that, that has its limitations, I reckon. Mm. Um, and so, I grew up in that electorate um, in French's Forest and I went to school in Brookvale. And so, I have been there and seen a lot of the sentiment that a lot of people have towards Tony Abbott and, you know, he, he he canes it every year, you know. He's been unchallenged pretty much for, you know, pretty almost 25 years in that seat. I think that the fact that he has said the same things over and over again about, you know, fixing the roads, getting a tunnel, um, upgrading Brookvale Oval, Um, helping congestion and like and he doesn't do anything about them and no one holds him to account because it is such a safe seat something about it I I, I saw his campaign launch and he promised those things and I was like hang on I think he said exactly the same things three years ago and I looked it up and he did and then I found newspaper articles from 2001 where he'd said the same things and I thought this is bullshit, this is actual bullshit that you can Promise something. Imagine you worked for an employer and you said, I'm going to get these things done in the next three years. And your contract renewal came up and he said, have you done any of those things? And you said, no, no, but I will do them next time. Um, just just give me another contract. Yeah. And that's what keeps happening. Mm. Get another contract for three years. In no other workplace would that happen. So, yeah, I I don't know what inside me was so adamant that he needed to at least have some sort of accountability and i went i'm gonna do this and i knew that i had some advantages that i was from that electorate that i had a profile and you know in a lot of people's eyes they probably just thought i was just a you know washed up reality tv host he doesn't know what he's talking about but i also follow this stuff really passionately and i think about it and i Um, sort of thrash it out with my friends and so I was very confident that I had enough knowledge to, you know, if it came to it stand on my own two feet yeah so i pressed the go button i was like let's do this
0: Mm." i remember a friend of mine sam yeldon was following you around for with the camera for mtv covering this kind of thing and i remember i i saw him at a party one night and this was before you and i had met and we hadn't worked together before and i was i had seen that you were running and i and i was like what is this about and i remember saying to sam like is this for real or is this like a media guy who's like, you know, because I didn't know what kind of person you were. I'd, yeah. never been, I'd never been around you. I'd never met you. And I remember Sam saying to me, because I think he had your T-shirt on at this party because <laughs> he was going to hand out flies and do yeah, something. Yeah, it was yeah. election time or something. And he said to me, he's the real deal. Like he's really... You know, and Sam's no idiot, he's a really nice guy and I remember he was really gung-ho about supporting you and I just thought, oh, right, and then we started working together and I properly met you and I was like, oh, no, right, you are a decent guy, like this is a genuine kind of passion of yours Um, because I think that immediate cynical kind of thought when you see that is like, oh, right, but then you realise, oh, this is something that you're doing because you genuinely want to create change and while you didn't win, you still did really well.
1: Yeah, we were really... Ha- and everyone's like, oh, you, you, you're you, a failure. You didn't even get close. We were like, hang on, we got, you know, almost 12,000 people who voted for us in a five-week campaign. We were only, you know, maybe 1,000 people away from topping Labor and mm. being the, you know, number two in two-party preferred. In that electorate, you know, there was an uptick of about 20% of youth who enrolled to vote. So, for us, that was what it was all about, you know, getting people activated, involved... And believing that, you know, change can happen. And we didn't win. We didn't even get close. But if you look at every social change that happened around the world, it doesn't start with just one boom and, oh, okay, we've altered the course of something. It is it is hard, slow, boring, patient work chipping away and creating momentum over mm-hmm. a long time. And, you know, and, and that is what is difficult for a lot of people who want to create social change is is getting enough people not just to buy in and go, yes, let's march, a march, yes, we have a march because that is easy. Mm. That's the easy part. That is cathartic for people. Yes, I was outraged and I took to the streets. That's the easy part and the hard part, the real part is going, what next? How do I keep people motivated, engaged, passionate, interested and informed so that we have a groundswell that is continual? And and that's the real challenge and that, that's what I'm really fascinated about. How do you do that and also how do you um, make people believe that, that change is, actual possible, is actually possible? And you, the one way to do it is to actually, you know, prove that it's possible but the other way is to like keep pointing out examples of, you know, how it is possible, you know. Um, every single social movement around the world started with a small group saying we have to create change here. And everyone else going, you're crazy. Yeah. Um, and then just stating their case, knowing their argument, being strong, um, not listening to those who want to keep things as they are, or worse still, attack them for even wanting to create change. Yeah.
0: Is is that now uh, your focus? Are you? kind of going down that path or is it taking the eye off the media ball or
1: i mean so here's the thing like the amount of time and effort that is required to do something like that you almost have to treat it like a full-time job but you can't really because there's no money in it yeah like you know anyone who is an activist will tell you that you know it's just done off their own bat with their own blood and their own money and mm. that's pretty tricky when you've got a young family yeah, you know so and that's what i'm sort of navigating now i'm like how do i stay involved in that how do i you know commit to it because it's something i truly believe in and um pay school fees yeah that's mm. a real challenge and uh, i haven't got the answer yeah <laughs> but you know the the One of the things, and Sam who you spoke about, he's an amazing videographer and editor and and we talked about this um, when we were making some content around it. One of the things we wanted to do was demystify the process and allow people to feel like, if I want to run, I can do it, you know, be it for a federal election, for a state election, for a council, for your student body. You know, if you believe in something, there are actual practical things that you can do to create change. And I think people who um, create Facebook polls and online petitions and tweet their outrage about stuff are creating their own momentum. But the reality is if you want to make things different, you've got to put your body on the line. Like so it, you
0: mean it's creating sort of a behind-the-scenes uh, doco kind of thing about how the steps So, yeah, we did
1: we, we did. we made a video about you right. know, how young people can vote um, how it's not as terrifying as it looks in terms of preferential voting. We actually documented the process of actually um, registering to become a applicant on the electoral roll, you know. First, right. you've got to make sure you're not born overseas, um, yeah, be a dual citizen.
0: Hasn't that become quite <laughs> the topic shit. to sure? shit. <laughs> Tell me quickly about that process, because when you went through that, you've gone through the process of trying to, you know, get into, um, into Parliament citizen, to yeah. become a dual <laughs> citizen. But but is that just a tick box? Is it easy to realise that you haven't done like the, all of this fuss uh, about what, what's going on in, in Parliament at the moment in Canberra? Yeah is it just a checkbox and you then have to go in and read the constitution and do your due diligence or is it really clear that... Um...
1: It's pretty much a checkbox. It says um, you have to sign that you are eligible mm-hmm. and to check the, the handbook that you get. Um, and the handbook talks about uh, are you a dual citizen, have you been convicted and charged with a crime in the last 12... That's I think you've, if you've served for more than 12 months, you're ineligible... Um, Am I insolvent or bankrupt? And you just go, well, I'm none of those things. Um, But
0: pardon my ignorance, but I don't think it is outside the realm of possibility that you might think if your parents were born somewhere and you've never applied for citizenship in that joint and you've never held a passport, that you would think you weren't a dual citizen. 100%. I think that that's not, I don't think there's anything outrageous about the fact that there are people in the parliament at the moment who have parents that were born in Greece and didn't, and we're all thinking, the scandal, the duplicity. And it's mm. like, what? Well, sorry, am I an idiot? Like, I wouldn't have assumed if I've never held a passport for another country that I was an accidentally a dual citizen. I, look, I actually need to check. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly need to check. Yeah. Recently, they were talking about one of the uh, Labour MPs whose parents were born, or one of the parents was born in Fiji when it was an English colony, and yeah. then. They were in turn born in Australia. I was like, my dad was born in Singapore when it was a British colony. I mean, but he came here when he was 10. I was born here. My entire family is from here. So, I mean, but the trouble is the constitution doesn't work like that. You know, it's like, were you a dual citizen when you nominated, you know? And it, it, the Constitution doesn't care. Well, there were mitigating factors, you know. Mm. Th- that's not how something like that works.
0: So. i tell you who else doesn't care, the general public. We don't give a shit. <laughs> Do not give a shit. Yeah. And we are in weeks of this <laughs> washing machine yeah. of the outrage and the and the high court and the, and everybody's just like, can we get on with yeah, garbage, so that's please. where people detach. And yes, so of course. So this is the thing
1: as well. Like... It's become such a farce that people no longer are really interested or want to pay attention to what's happening politically, which it serves our politicians. As soon as we've switched off, they can get away with anything, yes. you know, and so it, they don't actually, I don't think they actually care that this fuss is happening because the more disinterested we become, mm. the less they're held to account. Yeah. And that's great for them, of course. You
0: know, well, we need more honest people like you in politics. That's the that's the key. So <coughs> yeah, run again, please. And
1: then then you've got to actually do it. Oh, that's know? the other thing.
0: That's the reason that I go. I could never get in politics because I just don't want to. I don't want to be around those people. <laughs> but the only
1: the great motivation for me is like, and and this is why we're thinking about maybe doing it again and maybe even starting different parties. What if you could do it and did it completely differently? What if you did it and. There was complete transparency and no one ever attacked anyone and you did it with civility and you did it with compassion and you created a model where this is a way that you can do it. What do you think? And maybe, maybe if you can become even... A tiny bit successful, you create some change by forcing the major parties to go, oh, we might actually need to lift our game a little bit.
0: I think you'd stand out like dog's balls in a good way. In I love a good way, yeah. Uh, good right. Like good dog's balls. Good dog's balls. We're coming to the end now, so take a couple of whiffs of that peppermint so we can get through to the end. Uh, what do you think is the best and the worst thing about the media industry?
1: Um, I think the worst thing is uh, that it often it's beyond your control. You know, um, if you are in a normal, say you are a plumber or you are a accountant, you lose your job, you just open the paper, you go to seek.com and you go, Oh, I'm going to look for another job. Try doing that when you're a radio presenter, see how many jobs come up on (laughs) seek.com. Not many. (laughs) Um, uh, so that, that's probably the worst part is that idea that, you know, you are relying on yourself. You can't, you know, go to one of those big um, TV presenting companies and join up there. Mm. No, no, no. You, you have to be very much a self-starter, um, which is a positive in itself. And the best part, I think the best part is, you know, there are times where people have come up to me and said, oh my God, I loved that time that you did this thing, you know, or, oh, you made me laugh that time or you know i was having a shitty week and this happened on that show you were doing like that's really quite magical to be involved in you know without sounding pretentious that the idea that you can create something that someone remembers and brings joy to their life because life's hard Mm. and if you can be involved in something that you know gives them a little bit of levity and makes them smile then i reckon that's pretty extraordinary
0: Right, final five questions. Uh, Your biggest regret?
1: Um... Uh, that this is an amol.
0: Just, just for, for you listening at home, uh, I, we, we were talking a bit about the essential oils. I've been giving it a bit of a try. I'm Please a little... don't judge me. And uh, you and James was telling me that sniffing peppermint is good to give you a bit of a pep up. And I have never seen anybody grab a bottle and sniff more than this. Matt. You yes, uh, you've been just grabbing at that thing. I think. Gosh, am I asking bad questions? Am I am I making him nervous? <laughs> I don't. I don't
1: think I've got any real regrets. You know, I think. You just never know what you're going to end up doing. And I think that's the thing that people starting out need to remember. You ask anyone who's, you know, I reckon over about 40 and ask them what they're doing with their life and ask them, is it what you thought you'd be doing when you were growing up? And I guarantee 90% of those people will say, "No. no. How did you get there? No idea, you know. You just have to be open and say yes a
0: lot. Particularly in this business, I think trying to have a plan is almost impossible. In any, I reckon
1: in any business, mm. you know, just like find what you love and find a way to do something even remotely related to it.
0: Your dream gig.
1: You know, you know what? I've all, the one job that I would have loved to have done is write scores for um, film.
0: Like, are you? I know you're musically talented, but are you score for film musically no, talented? No, I'm
1: not musically talented. I can. But play, you're a
0: muse, like you play, I right? I play
1: like some terrible guitar, and I can play like half a song on the piano. Were you in a band? Yeah, but that's that's exactly right. You don't right. need to know much. You don't to need to in a know. Band. You okay. know, you just play three chords, a lot of distortion. You know, sound angry. <laughs> wear a good shirt. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm two degrees of separation away from a couple of composers, and whenever I hear stories about them from friends, uh, that either one's married to one and one is the brother of one, and I just that is that for me is such a magic trick Mm -hmm. of a job. I don't know how you can be given footage on a screen Mm -hmm. and sit down in front of a piano or whatever you use. And write music to build a mood. I, I, that is such, I can't even get my head around it. That's magic. That's magic.
1: And and create something that would make someone cry. That would yeah. move someone so much that they have a significant emotional response. That for me would be my dream job. Mm.
0: Uh, is there a big idea you've got that you've uh, yet to get up yet?
1: Oh, there's plenty. There is heaps. <laughs> this is another common theme I mean, amongst all of my guests on yeah. this show.
0: <laughs> the notepads filled with unfulfilled ideas. You know, I could
1: have my own innovations catalogue <laughs> with crazy ideas that I've never actually come up with. Yes. I'm actually, I'll, I'll, I won't tell you about it now, but I've just um, filed a, a patent on something. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's exciting. Mm,
1: yeah, which is really exciting.
0: That's really cool. That's something I know I'll never do because my sort of uh, invention, like I'm good at coming out with ideas and the creative space and that kind of thing, yeah. but the whole invention side of things are actually needing a patent for something. Yeah. I don't think that's a path I'll ever – go down so that's pretty impressive
1: i mean you know you just you just be hopelessly optimistic
0: yeah well that's it maybe i will maybe (laughs) i will uh we'll watch this space uh if you weren't doing this as in working in media what would you be doing
1: i reckon i'd probably still be in a warehouse somewhere you know or at the end of a call center, sweaty chicken fillets (laughs) managing maybe i'd be managing a team at a call center you know Mm. it's hard to know and i think that uh i've been so lucky yeah and i think that's another big one you know having gratitude is so huge in this industry and just being grateful that someone somewhere saw an audition tape and went yeah he'd be great you know when i wouldn't have never thought that about myself i would never thought yeah i'm excellent i'm perfect for this like that never really entered my mind it was more about turn up have a stab you know and so i'm grateful to all those people who went
0: no 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 he he, i believe
1: in him you know because it it takes someone like that for you to continue to get work you know
0: Uh, and finally your advice to people wanting to get into the business
1: yeah get a therapist (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) probably Zanek, zoloft um valium um probably some mood stabilizers (laughs) in there, some essential (laughs) oils. Essential oils. No, I reckon you've got to get the flying hours up, you know. I think a lot of kids think that they could just walk on air and and do it but you have to do the hours to be able to pull it off on air and I think there's a great way to do that. You start your own YouTube channel, start your own podcast, um, start your own blog, you know. There are zero barriers to entry. Like it costs nothing Mm -hmm. for you to get started to create these things and you know, and do what you really love. Like Tom Williams, what's his name? Is he the guy with the great ideas? He was a chippy. Like, yeah. and so he started American doing stuff in TV and on radio that revolved around him being a carpenter, you know, um, Osha, who I worked with on Australian Idol, like he knew he wanted to work in music. And so he, he made audition tapes around music and then he got on channel V, um, you know all, all the people i know haven't just gone i want to be on tv they knew a niche whether it was you know gardening or football or sports or news like and they knew their stuff around that niche and then they sort of crowbarred their way in there dr chris brown who you're doing
0: the project, the project with, with, yeah
1: he was a vet and he was like oh, i can do a show you know around veterinary science on TV and then has parlayed into a career in TV. So, always anyone who thinks I just want to be a presenter, like, you're kidding yourself. Know something. Know your stuff around something and be that. Whether it's an entertainment reporter, whether it's a, um, you know, a, a comic book expert online. Like, there's guys who review board games on YouTube who are hugely successful. Mm-hmm. They're the most unphotogenic guys you've ever seen in your life. But... They've got a massive following because they know their board games, yeah. you know, and they're passionate about it. And there is, if there is something that you love and that you care about, there is going to be hundreds of thousands of people out there who care and love the exact same thing. No matter how obscure, no matter how weird, no matter how rare, they're out there and you just make something that talks to them.
0: And on that note... We say goodbye. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Rach. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes and keep up to date, head to to somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with James Matheson and here's hoping that one day we do see him in Parliament because he is very, very passionate about doing things differently and actually helping people instead of just waffling on and trying to stay in office. Next week, I am chatting with the lovely Amanda Keller. Of course, she is the host or co-host of the Sydney Breakfast Show, Jonesy and Amanda on WSFM. She has also been a fixture on our radio and television screens for years, including, oh God, do we all love it, Beyond 2000. She has amazing stories from a very long and successful career. So I hope you'll join me for that chat. A big thank you to, if you have left a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast, there have been some very nice messages coming through via that channel and I do so appreciate it. I'm absolutely chuffed that you're enjoying these chats and I hope you will continue to join me each week. Shout out to Daniel Izzo and Sarah Lou Cross Sarah you will be happy that Amanda is on next week because she was your recommendation. If you would like to suggest a guest for this podcast then please just head to iTunes and leave a review and you can leave a little note to me in there or alternatively head to the website you've got to start somewhere.com and send me an email. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.